All right, today we're gonna to quickly talk about some of the original research and also the best articles that we uh, highlighted on Validia's Guru Investor blog for the week of February 26, 2021. And uh, to start, um, I guess I'll start by talking about the podcast we put out on Monday, and that was sort of taking a look at what transpired in uh, the stock of GameStop and um, some of these other securities that have kind of been driven by a lot of the retail crowd and um, uh, I guess the users on the message board Reddit. And so what we did is we walked through, we sort of started at the beginning, we you know talked about the some of the early retail investors that were bullish on GameStop and then how that kind of fueled itself in the Reddit message board, how someone on the message board identified that there was a huge amount of short interest and um, as the stock went up, you had shorts being forced to cover, and that prompted ultimately a huge, massive short squeeze in which the stock went from whatever it was, you know, I don't know, a couple dollars a share um, in March of last year, and it went all the way up to, uh, I think, on an intraday basis, maybe like over $450 a share. Um, and we sort of just talked about, I think, what had transpired and also some of the lessons that you know, investors might want to sort of think about and try to learn from this experience. And interestingly enough, on the day that we're recording this, GameStop and some of these other companies are sort of flying again here. It actually started last night, mostly in the after hours. So it looks like these these stocks are still getting pushed around again. And I do know there was um, uh, there was a firm that has created sort of some technique to look at these Reddit message board, this specific Reddit message board, Wall Street Bets, and to try to identify the stocks that are being talked about the most. And I think GameStop um, started to tick up over the last day or two in terms of mentions on Wall Street Bets. And so you're seeing sort of, I think the stock move to some extent because of that. So anyways, that was that was the the um, the gist of our, our podcast uh, this week. Yeah, you know, uh, I think probably a lot of the comments I make on the podcast don't age that well, but this was about the quickest my comments didn't age well ever because I basically said on that podcast that these, this GameStop situation will never happen again with another stock. And then within two days, not only did it happen again, but it happened with GameStop. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not likely to get where it got last time just because the hedge funds are not short this time. And that was a big part of driving this. Um, so, you know, the short interest is way, way down from where it was. So you're probably not going to get thousands of percent return, but it's, it just shows how difficult this is. I mean, just within, within days, you know, we think this is not going to happen again. And, and already we, we've got a hundred GameStop was up hundred percent yesterday. And I, I don't know how much it's up today, but it's already going, but it, it's important to understand here that we are in a different kind of market. And, you know, we're going to be seeing some different things than we've seen in the past. I mean, we had a huge retail influx into the market af after the lows, you know, in March and April. And we really don't know, you know, those of us that have been doing this for a while, we really don't know what the impact of this is going to be. Um, it, it's easy to, for everyone to have an opinion on how this is going to play out, but we don't know because we've never seen anything like this before. So it's just important to take everything with a grain of salt and know we can't really say, you know, uh, what might happen in the future. Like I probably should have taught myself before I said the GameStop situation wouldn't happen again. Well, no, but it, you know, it's funny you say that because the CEO of Robinhood, you know, was on with Dave uh, Port. Is it Dave Portnoy? Ah, uh, yes, Portnoy from, from Barstool. Me. Yeah, yes. yeah. So he, um, these guys kind of jumped on. I think it was YouTube, and they were sort of having this discussion or this debate about Robinhood deciding to stop the trading in GameStop. And one of the things that, and I think um, the CEO of Robinhood uh, actually said this in his uh, testimony to Congress too, but. The odds of what happened were like one out of 3.5 million, 
you know, it's ba basically there, there hasn't even been that many trading days in history. And, you know, and yet what happened with GameStop, it was that's that's so far out of the statistical probability. But like you said on the podcast, you know, in the markets, what we don't think could ever happen could always happen. So that's probably the biggest lesson here is don't think just because you haven't seen it before. Um, something like that can't happen. And GameStop's just one example, but you can go back in financial history and think of instances where things that you don't think could have happened, these black swan-like events, you know, do actually take place. So it's just a good good thing to always remember. Um, in terms of your article, um, you wrote about blending different factors. I know you really like the image I used, which was of the mixing board. So what was your, uh, what was that article about this week? Yeah, you, you, first of all, you do do a good job with those images. I don't even know where you get them Thank from, you. but uh, <laughs> I still I still have never posted one of those GIF things on Twitter. I don't even know where people get those from. So that shows how far behind the times I am. I don't know where any of this stuff comes from. But uh, yeah, in general, what I wanted to look at is, you know, we've been blending, you know, we, we run about 45 quant models now and they range from value to momentum to growth to everything. And we've been blending them together for a long time now. And we, you know, obviously you make a bunch of stake, mistakes as you're doing that and you learn a lot. And so what I wanted to do is talk about a few of the lessons I've learned doing that over the years. And, you know, the three major lessons were one is recognize what, what is not possible. And what, what I mean by that is you have to understand that no matter how you blend factors together, even if you get these two factors that are on the opposite end of the spectrum, value and momentum, you're still going to have one year periods where you trail the market. Um, and, you know, so what I did as an experiment in the article is I, I ran, I took all 45 strategies we have. I looked at any unique combination of three of them. And if you, if you do the math on that, there's about 14,000 possibilities. And I just took the best one. And then I said, all right, if, if I had known everything in advance, if I had had perfect foresight to see what would happen, could I build a portfolio that beat the market every single year? And the answer was no. Um, you know, the, that best portfolio outperformed the market about 77% of one-year periods. So it just goes to show that no matter what you do with factors, no matter how much you blend them, you're still going to have these periods where you struggle. Um, and then the second one was, was measure what matters. And that's sort of, we've, we've talked about that in previous videos, but the, the idea is instead of using advanced st statistical concepts, what we've tried to like to do is look at people's behavior and look at what would cause bad behavior when we're blending factors together and try to reduce those things. So if I underperform over one year, or if I underperform over three years, or if I ever underperform over five years, or if I have a huge magnitude of underperformance as an investor, though all of those things are likely to make me abandon my strategy. And so when we build portfolios, we're trying to optimize on reducing the potential of those things, knowing that they all exist, as we said before, but we're trying to build portfolios that reduce the potential for those types of outcomes that would lead to bad behavior. Um, and then the last one was make sure the end result makes sense. And what I was getting at with that is you have to be careful that you don't, you know, after you've gone through this process, you don't end up with, you know, if you looked at just the past 10 years, you'd end up with a growth portfolio and a momentum portfolio and a low volatility portfolio, and you'd have no exposure to value, you'd have no exposure to quality. So it's important that when you get at the end of these processes of blending factors together, you say, you know, what are the potential outcomes in the market going forward? And do I have exposure that could do well in each one of those outcomes? And so if you exclude value based on the past decade, you're missing a big potential outcome, you know, the outcome of inflation or rising rates or, you know, that outcome you're probably not as well positioned for if you don't have that. So it's just important to look at the end result and say, you know, has what is does what I've come up with here, does it make sense? Yeah, I think your point on that experiment you did with taking all of our strategies, putting in our putting them in our optimizing engine, if that's what you call it, and then looking for, you know, the combination that works the best, it's still only I shouldn't say only, but it underperformed the market, you know, 30% of all one year rolling periods, right? That's what you were looking at? Yeah, 23, so, so yeah, a lot. Yeah, so I think what the takeaway probably for investors, and this 
goes back to a quote from Corey Hofstein. I heard him say at a conference once, you know, if you see an investment strategy that has basically never, never underperforms a market or outperforms over every single year, um, especially if it's a, a back-tested one, you know, there, there's probably something wrong with that. And what you should say to the manager, to the person putting that in front of you is, you know, you have to test it over a longer period of time. You have to go back even further because no strategy, you know, always works. And, and we certainly know that by running all the models and even like this experiment you did. So that's probably the biggest takeaway for investors. If it looks, you know, too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, this was obviously a perfect, you know, exercise in data mining, what I did. I mean, this is not, there's no, you can't read anything into those results because I, I basically picked after the fact the best model, not knowing anything. I, you know, I, I wouldn't have known any of that going into the 10 year period. So even doing that, even with, you know, breaking every rule of backtesting, I still couldn't get something that outperforms every year. Uh, what was your um, top article on the blog this week? Yeah, I liked a, uh, an article. There was an article called Technology, a New Asset Class. I think it was. Was it from CFA Institute? Yeah, well, we might not be calling this your top article, but it's something that <laughs> yeah. jumped out at you. Yeah, it's something that, looked at, that, I, that I thought was interesting. And, you know, this, this yeah. is the type of thing, you know, you, it's getting to your point. This is the type of thing you see sort of as, as you approach market tops, maybe, is, is you see people redefining what asset classes are. Um, you know, or, or you know, thinking the world is completely changed. And, you know, the, the first reaction is, I think it is, it is totally true that technology is a way bigger part of our lives. You know, in some ways, technology is not really even a sector anymore because it spans so many different sectors. So, you know, one of the points they made in the article, which is interesting, is if, I think the top two companies in the S&P 500 market cap wise are Apple and Microsoft right now. But when you get through the rest of the top 10, you're going to see names like Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, Google. None of those are tech stocks. Um, as defined right. by, you know, the, the sectors now. So in some ways it's, you know, we have to just think maybe technology is not a sector. Maybe technology is just something that's going to span across everything we do. It's just going to be part of our everyday lives um, versus because when, when you try to classify companies as to whether they're technology, it becomes very hard. And when you try to go out and find companies that don't utilize technology at all, you're probably not going to find any. So I, I think in some ways, maybe the point here is not like we need to redefine technology as an asset class, but maybe it's, you know, technology is going to play a role in everything we do. But, but overall, you know, I still think this is the type of thing you might see when, when we're getting towards a, you know, a, a frothy market because you know, people tend to try to redefine things um, in, in a way that makes them you know, seem more positive going forward maybe than, than they actually are. Yeah, it's a good point. Like, te you know, technology is pretty much being used or utilized in every industry. Now, maybe some companies use it more than others. I mean, Amazon was built on the you know, backbone of the internet. It wouldn't exist if it wasn't the internet, but it's, you know, not considered a technology company. Um, you know, you have, uh, I think, is Google and uh, Facebook both communications? Are they labeled the communication sector? But anyways, the point is, is that, you know, you, you think about this technology sector, but many companies are, you know, utilizing technology significantly in their business models, even outside of those big names. And so it's, it's, it's almost like a concept or a, a layer of the business model and not necessarily maybe a sector. I don't know. It's interesting. And this, this, it reminds me a little bit of that O'Shaughnessy paper they did on the 1926 to 41 period where value struggled. Because what they found is, you know, when this new technology came in, value struggled. But then after, you know, as, as things wound down and value started to do better, 
other firms outside of what you would be considered technology started to figure out how to use the technology. And that's sort of what we're seeing right here, I think, as I, when I was saying, like, everyone is using technology, so it's hard to define technology. We're starting to see firms that would be considered more old line firms starting to utilize technology. And so it makes it much more hard, much more difficult to define, you know, what is a technology company and what is not a technology company. Um, what was your article this week? Yeah, so it was an article that actually was from late January, so a little bit dated, but it was from James McIntosh. He's a writer for the Wall Street Journal. Um, I like a lot of his uh, articles because they're kind of in this sort of more investment commentary, not like just reporting. And the title of the article was, if it looks like a bubble and swims like a bubble, dot, dot, dot. And then he was basically drawing, he's, he was saying, you know, he's been reluctant to do it, but he's seeing a lot of comparisons between the dot-com bubble back in 99, 2000 to today's stock market. And um, I'll go through those in a, in a minute, but you know, what some listeners may not know about Jack and I is we actually participated with the first version of Validia in that dot-com bubble. So we were around and building the first version of Validia during that period of time that that version of Validia actually ended up failing, but that kind of set the stage for what we've been building over the last 18 years, um, really starting in 2003. But you know, I, I would say that from what I remember from those times, you know, companies with no business models, raising millions, tens of millions of dollars, um, sort of just the stocks trading at 100 times sales or 200 times sales, or the companies that were, you know, uh, weren't making any money or there was no outlook for them to make any money in the near term were sort of some of the most value com valued companies in the market. So, you know, you sort of start to draw, if you think about what's going on today, um, you start to draw some parallels to um, that period of time. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're in a bubble or that the market's going to like pull back tomorrow or that set sets the stage for the for a bear market in the near term, but it's just, I think for people that have, you know, been through that period, it's hard not to look at some of the things going on today and say that, you know, yeah, it does look sort of similar. So he pointed out five similarities between then and now. Uh, the first one was the exponential growth in the price of story stocks. So obviously stocks that like Tesla, where there's a story, almost like a cult-like thing behind it, where it's kind of hard to back into their valuations, but they're, they're, they're becoming extremely valuable in the market and investors are seeking them out. So that's one example. Um, he also pointed to number two, the flood in early stage IPO back then. So you had a lot of companies going public back in 1998, 99 and 2000, uh, very early. But what you have today is these SPACs or special purpose um, acquisition companies basically that are you know just raising money with the intention of buying a company and bringing them public. And a lot of these companies are very, very early stage. So you're getting a lot of maybe companies that, you know, probably need more time to develop that are getting access and going public through these SPACs. Um, number three, and I'm not trying to, you know, I don't know if I completely agree with them here, but you know, new investors who don't know what they're doing. I mean, I do think with Robinhood and um, sort of just more retail investors trading, there's certainly a lot of new investors. I guess what I would say is through different things I'm involved with, I've listened to a lot of these new investors and I think a lot of them seem like they're reasonable and smart and do have a long-term time horizon, but I know that's not all new investors. 
but I do think there's sort of a cohort in the market of all these brand new investors that have come in and are buying and picking individual stocks. And a lot of the stocks are stocks that are some more of these story stocks. Now these investors believe in these stories and you know some of these story stocks are gonna get smoked, but um, you know, so anyways, you clearly have a lot more new investors sort of in the market buying individual stocks and probably playing with options too, which can be risky. Um, and then he pointed to a couple other things, but anyways, I just thought it's, it's good to think back and draw parallels to history. Again, history never repeats itself completely, but it rhymes. And it's, you know, just good to think about other times in the market that we've been through, we have experience in and try to relate them to, I guess, what's happening today. Yeah. I mean, these things are so hard to figure out because like you said, there's tons of signs right now that we could be in a bubble. But then you look at, you know, the top companies, the most highly weighted companies in the S&P are very expensive, but they're probably not, you know, the Facebooks and Microsofts of the world are probably not a bubble right now. But the hardest thing for me about bubbles is you, you see that you're potentially in one, but there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Because, you know, if you, if you think about the late 90s bubble, I mean, it looked like a bubble in like 1997, you know, and then you got, you know, especially in the tech type stocks, you got something like 30% a year returns for a couple of years after that. And so there's, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can't short a bubble, you know, you're not going to go to cash because you're going to miss, you know, a ton of returns. I mean, I guess you can reduce, you know, s slowly and methodically reduce the risk in your portfolio or something, but it's very, very hard to do anything in advance with these things where you can profit from them. So you see them, you know, in retrospect, you're certainly going to look back at yourself and say, well, I should have seen this coming whenever it ends, whether it's five years from now or next year or whenever it is, you know, you're going to say, I should have seen this coming. I should have done something, but the reality is sitting where we're sitting right now, there's, there's not really anything you can do about it. All you can do is just invest the same way you invest for the long term and understand that at some point, you know, this thing is probably going to go south. Yeah, I was listening to just real quick. I was listening to uh, Bill Smead on Med Favors podcast yesterday, and he's he kind of thinks things are fraught, very frothy. And he was making parallel, drawing parallels between what happened in in two thousand ninety nine two thousand to today. But one of the examples he gave, and I posted this on Twitter, but let me just sort of set it up. Is he he basically said from March two thousand um, through basically. Uh, February of this year, Cisco has an annualized return of 62 basis points a year, including dividends. So basically over that 21 year period, the stock has essentially gone nowhere. And yet its business from the 2003-2004 period is actually up four times. The reason that it is that way is because in March of 2000, Cisco was trading at whatever, what hundreds and hundreds of times sales. It was one of the largest, if not the largest company in the market. And it was so incredibly overvalued. And then when that valuation corrected, um, you know, you had a, you've had a very long period of Cisco stock basically dramatically underperforming the market and many other, many other stocks. And so I posted that on Twitter, but then someone um, commented, yeah, but if you look at the returns of Cisco, I don't know what it was, five years before that, you would have been up like 10X. So he kind of got me, this guy on Twitter. I mean, I, all I was doing was reposting what Smeed said because I found that very interesting. But this, this um, person on Twitter commented, you know, yeah, but if you, if you roll the performance back. So, I, I mean, there's, I think there's, you know, there's nothing right or wrong about it. I just think it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, it's the stock had gone up so much. Investors had made so much money. It probably minted millionaires along the way. But then when the valuation, when the bubble popped, you know, it still hasn't, you know, 
um, it's just been not a good performing stock over 21 years. So anyways, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. And you see it throughout these bubbles too. You know, if you look at, uh, when we had Vitaly Katzenelson on the podcast, he talked about the nifty 50, you know, the late sixties and some of the mm. big brand names there, you had the same exact effect. Their businesses did great for in the years going forward, but their stocks did nothing. And so it just shows the starting valuation, you know, when you invest does matter. Um, and like you said with Cisco, if you invested at the starting valuation of 1994, you probably did pretty well. If you had started in the value, starting valuation of 2000, you did badly. And that, that's the difference between your example and the, someone who post, you know, the person who posted on your Twitter account is that it, it, does, you know, it doesn't matter in the short term what your starting valuation is, but eventually it does matter. And you can have really good companies that do really well and you can make no money in them. All right. So uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for watching this weekly recap and we'll see you next week. Thank you. If you'd like to keep up on the research, writing, and curation we're doing at Validia, please go to blog.validia.com to learn more and stay updated. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. Thanks so much. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.